Hi, I'm Gracie Sarkeesian, the Executive Director at the NYU Wasserman Center, and this is All in a Day's Work, the podcast we've created for you. All in a Day's Work will bring you episodes featuring members of the NYU community doing interesting work and navigating the professional world. We are excited to share their stories with you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, this is Lily Smith with another episode of All in a Day's Work. Today, I'm speaking with Anna Nathanson. Anna earned her Master of Social Work at NYU Silver, and now she is a lead clinician at Children's Aid and a private practice psychotherapist. Anna, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Thanks, Lily. I'm excited to be here. So you work as a social worker, and I want to talk about what you're doing right now, but you didn't necessarily start your career there. So can you start by talking about what you were doing before you began graduate studies and what eventually led you to seek out a degree in social work? Yeah, definitely. So I went to college at McGill University in Montreal, and I studied there, like you said, not social work. I studied international development and economics. I envisioned sort of after graduation working for a large, like, nonprofit, non-governmental organization, like maybe the UN or Doctors Without Borders. And as a stepping stone to that, I applied for the Peace Corps. And I did the Peace Corps for two years in Cameroon, which is in West Central Africa. What really meant something to me while I was working there was that I was really embedded within a community. I was living in the same town for two years. The effect of that was that the beneficiaries of my projects were also my co-collaborators. And so we were really able to share power. We were able to share resources, able to share information and kind of create the best possible scenario by working together. And so, you know, I came in and I'm certainly not an expert on growing Cameroonian crops and making money from that. But I could work with people who were, like I could work with people who were community leaders, who were farmers within the community. And then I could share the things I do have information about, about food security, about marketing goods to make more money from these crops, about new techniques that they might be able to use. And I knew when I came home that that was what I wanted to really carry into my career, the ability to kind of work within a community, to get to know the community, and then to be able to to share power and resources with with the community and collaborate together through that. That's awesome. And I feel like that's something that comes up in a lot of the interviews on this podcast is like how you sort of have an idea about how your career is going to go. And then when you actually get out into the world, it sort of shifts as you learn more about yourself and what you're interested in. So you were also a Coverdell Fellow. Can you tell me a little bit about that program and what ways it shaped your experience at NYU and your professional experience? I feel like when I meet other Peace Corps volunteers, there's always this immediate kinship. I think a lot of Peace Corps volunteers will will find that. So being able to be part of that community when I went to NYU was really special. And I think one of the biggest benefits that I got from the program was sort of programming around how to tell my story and how to make my Peace Corps experience relevant. Like it was so important to me to be able to carry my Peace Corps experience into my career, even if it wasn't in an overt way and how figuring out how to continue the work I, you know, if not, if not the exact work I had been doing, of course, then being able to keep those lessons learned with me. And so I think that was like the biggest thing that I got and and being able to have that shared community while I did it. And when you began school, did you sort of imagine that after graduation, you'd be working in private practice or nonprofits? How did you sort of envision your career at the start? Or did you go in not quite knowing how or where it was going to lead you? So when I had first come back from Peace Corps, I worked for a program called Home Base, which is a city funded program it's all around eviction prevention. And so the idea is 
people come to the program when they're at risk of being evicted and the program helps them find funding or court advocacy, something that can help them stay in those apartments that they have. And so when I did that, we had a two-hour intake process when clients would come to our program. And in two hours, you can really learn a lot about someone. And I realized that I was sort of acting in this role as like people's quasi-therapist. And I thought, well, I would really like to go to school and learn how to be a real therapist. And so that was kind of the most direct springboard into the program. And so I definitely knew coming in that I wanted to do like what's called clinical social work, like being able to be a therapist, being able to be in direct practice, hearing about people's experiences, helping them process their experiences and their emotions. That sort of work was really interesting to me. And I think in terms of who I would be doing that with, I wasn't totally sure. You know, I'd had several different experiences coming in, and so I didn't really know. And I think some people come into social work school with this idea of like, oh, there's a very specific population I want to work with. And I almost think there's a danger in that of commodifying someone's challenges. Like, oh, I'm very excited about working with this person on like the thing that they most struggle with. Like there's a way that it can sort of separate, I think, the therapist from from the client. And I, I actually think there's something that can be kind of harmful about that. And so I really wanted to sort of have an open mind and think more about like themes that I wanted to bring in rather than like the specific population that I wanted to work with. And to me, that felt like sort of an important framework to be thinking about. I'd like to know more, too, about some of the professional experiences you had while you were pursuing your master's degree. So did you do any internships or have any sort of hands-on experience while you were pursuing that degree? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So within the two-year program in social work, I had two internships, which is pretty standard. There's a certain number of hours that all students have to have to be able to then later sit for the licensing exam. And so I had two different internships the first year. I was an intern at a school called the International High School at Union Square, which is a public Department of Education funded regular high school that has students who have come from other countries to the U.S. within the last four years, and they're all English language learners. And so I was working with almost all African students, some English speaking, some French speaking, and doing therapy with them. And it, and it you know, it was often sort of supportive counseling. And a lot of them, this was their first experience with therapy. And so just sort of processing things that were coming up at home, things that were coming up as a result of their migration process, also helping with sort of case management needs. Okay, do they need assistance getting dental care? Do they need assistance getting warm clothing? Do they need assistance locating a lawyer or legal representation? So kind of helping with the concrete needs, which then also facilitated a lot of those clinical, clinical needs as well. And then my second year, I was also in a high school, but a really sort of different setting. I was in a high school that's located in the New York State Psychiatric Institute, which is a state-funded psychiatric hospital that's located in uptown Manhattan. And the program that I was in was called the Children's Day Unit. And the Children's Day Unit is a outpatient day program for teenagers who have severe anxiety disorders that preclude them from being able to be in a traditional school setting. And so it's a high school within this hospital unit. And I was doing a lot of family work there in addition to individual and group work. So I was seeing the the children and meeting also with their parents and doing some like what's called psychoeducation. So sort of teaching the parents about like, here's what this anxiety disorder might mean for your child. Here's how it might show up. Here's how to best support them. And, and it was there that I really, I, I really liked working with families quite a bit more than I even expected. And so, and that, that kind of brought in this interest that I would not have known that I had. 
And you do continue to do work with families. Can you talk a little bit about your current position and, and how you got that position and what you are doing there? Yeah, so I work at Children's Aid, which is a large social services nonprofit in New York City. And I work for a program called Safe Way Forward. Safe Way Forward is a demonstration project, which is kind of like a pilot. Like it's just a couple years old. And it was designed and is funded by ACS. So ACS is the city agency responsible for if there's like an abuse or neglect allegation against a family about a child. ACS is the city agency that responds to that and then sort of takes control of the case. And so they designed this program and the idea was to work with families impacted by domestic violence. We work with the entire family, which is relatively unique. And so what really drew me to this job was the opportunity to work with the person causing harm. And that's the bulk of my role is doing, you know, accountability and behavior change oriented work with this sort of trauma informed lens which entails like considering not just the harm that they've caused, but also what harm might have been done to them in the past, what kind of institutional harms like poverty, like racism might be ongoing in their lives. And when I tell people about it, they're often like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Like, why would we not work with the person causing harm to try to understand why they're doing that and and support them in taking accountability and making a change, right? So in recent months, we've actually sort of restructured the program. So I'm now also working with survivors and children doing therapy too. So that's that's the role that I have there. Wow, that's really amazing. And I'm curious too to talk a little bit more about what it is like to work, you know, not just with victims of abuse, but also with people who are causing harm. So how do you sort of handle both practically and emotionally working with clients who don't necessarily want to work with you. A lot of your clients are sort of tied up in the legal system and might not have come to you of their own volition. So I'm curious, like how you approach social work in that case. Yes, definitely. And it's something I think about truly all the time, because I think I came into social work with this very person-centered idea, like person and environment, client first, like what does the client want? How is the client sort of perceiving therapy, like how do I sort of put their needs front and center? And then in this role, there's sort of a conflict there. There's a conflict because the family court system has one sort of set of expectations and priorities for this person, and their priorities might not align with that. So whose priorities do I put first, right? And so that's like just at the baseline, such a challenging clinical situation to be in. And I do think like when I think of sort of motivation, I think of like some of us are going to be motivated or in some situations we might be motivated by external motivators. And in some situations we might be intrinsically motivated. So a lot of the clients that come to our program, it is technically speaking a a voluntary program. But at the point that they're coming to us, most clients have been separated from their family. There's an order of protection, meaning that they cannot contact their partner or ex-partner, they cannot contact their children. Any visits with their children have to be done supervised by ACS, which is, again, that agency that is handling the case. And so people are coming in with this external motivator of, oh, I'd like to get ACS out of my life. I don't want to be surveilled by this system, right? I, I want to be able to communicate with my family without that. And so by engaging in our program, they're showing the judge through this family court process that they are making a good faith effort to to change and understand their abusive behavior better. And the reality then is that they come into our program and, and a lot of the time people are not all that interested in our services. They might deny or 
minimize or justify their abusive behavior. And they might honestly just not want to talk to me about it, right? Like there's a lot of shame that comes with reckoning with the harm that you've caused. And I I really think we all have caused harm. We all cause harm kind of all the time. Like it's part of what being in relationship is. And I think of this about myself. Like when do I want to sort of face the harm that I've caused, especially with a stranger? Like not very often. And so, and so kind of coming back to that question of motivation, like I can use that external motivation to bring them in and engage them. But then I also want to sort of switch that to an intrinsic motivation of like, well, what's important to you? Like probably your relationship with your children, right? Like, can we talk about the impact that this violence might've had on your children? And then can we sort of think about a way to create accountability? And accountability, when contrasted with punishment, is like super hopeful, it's super positive, it's all about repair and moving forward. Like the state can punish a person, but like I can't make someone be accountable. Like accountability is a process that has to come from people's from their own power and their own volition. And I can sort of invite people into that process and give them more information about what that might look like. We'll be right back to our episode. But first, here are some quick tips about applying to the Peace Corps from NYU's campus recruiter, Tatiana Dozer. The number one thing I always tell people is to be mindful that it is 27 months of service, but to think of it as 27 months to be fully immersed in a new culture, learn a new language, and build lasting relationships to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Being a flexible applicant and volunteer is vital to successful service. It is a competitive process, but showing that you are willing to go where your skills and the needs of the host country are best aligned make you a more desirable candidate. Once you're a volunteer, Projects and timelines aren't always going to go to plan, and being able to adapt to situations will make your service almost fly by. I'm here to answer any questions you may have, do a resume review, or even an application workshop. And those that reach out typically have a better chance of becoming a volunteer. I can be reached at peacecorps at nyu.edu if you'd like to connect. And now, back to the episode. talked a little bit about this, the importance of context when you're treating a single individual and sort of the importance of community and having a community-based approach. Part of the context, of course, is the communities that people are coming from. And a lot of your clients are people of color. They're people who are sort of tied up in the legal system in some way. You know, you're a white woman. How do you approach working with those families and trying to understand that context and that, those communities without really being a part of them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Like you said, nearly all my clients are black and brown men, some women as well. And they're all entangled in the family court system. And the family court system and ACS as an entity are super flawed. They have really problematic histories. And like I said, most of my clients, when they enter our program, have an order of protection, barring them from contacting their partner or ex-partner. And they can only see or communicate with their children through ACS. So ACS which is, you know, an entity of city government, has so much power over these clients. And I have so much power over these clients because I'm an extension of ACS. I'm writing a court report every time that they have court, you know, addressed to the family court judge saying, hey, here's how engaged this person is in this program. Here's how much they're taking accountability. That's like a massive amount of power that I have, which is compounded on the other sources of power I have, that I'm a white person and I'm a therapist. Therapists have so much influence over their clients' lives just just by virtue of having that role. And so, it, like, that's incredibly important 
context to be considering. And, you know, the police, like most of these people have at some point in their family court case, like generally there's a referring incident. And so they're more likely than not, the police were involved in that. All these entities are surveilling and punishing black and brown families. Like at the very least, I need to be, I need to be aware of these dynamics. I need to be aware of my own role in them. You know, how am I going to sort of invite my client to take accountability when these systems that are harming my client are not taking accountability for the harm that they've caused? And I think like what I keep coming back to as I reflect on these is the same lessons that I learned in the Peace Corps, that like the only way to do this work is to be collaborative, to be curious and not judgmental, being able again to like have that sort of power sharing, to like allow that relationship to be one of co-conspirators rather than like me telling them what to do because that's never going to be effective, right? So, so I think that's such a big part of it. And I think also having both white and multiracial sort of groups of of peers that I can reflect on these ideas with because it's so messy. And the worst case scenario is that I'm adding more harm to the system and not more good. And so thinking about like, how do I reduce the harm I'm causing and increase the good is like just a constant sort of calculation I'm making. So I, I, Love to talk more about your work at Children's Aid, but I also want to touch on some of the other work you do because you also take on private clients. So can you talk a little bit about how you develop that client base and how you're sort of balancing that with your full-time social work? Yeah, definitely. So I work for a group practice called Resilience Lab, which is based here in New York, and I've been there about two years. I actually started around the same time I started at Children's Aid, and so I've been doing both all along. So I work full-time at Children's Aid, and then I also work part-time at Resilience Lab, seeing about like eight private clients each week in the evenings. What's cool is that at the licensure level I'm at, I can't see private clients without being employed by a supervisor, but I have a lot of autonomy within that. So I find my own clients, I set my own fees, I set my own schedule. And so it is like having my own private practice, essentially, which is really gratifying because I can you know, have a lot of my own autonomy through that. And I found a lot of my clients actually through a company called My Wellbeing, which is like a therapist matchmaker. And it was started by an NYU Silver grad. <laughs> so love to support them. Being in private practice, I find that my clients tend to be really invested in therapy. They're like really intrinsically motivated, which is really nice. And in the work, like we can be super open-ended with the kind of work we're able to do. With my clients, I can like be really focused on something specific or be like really exploratory and curious, that's, that's really gratifying as well. That's awesome. So now that you've, you've been out of school for a little bit, do you have any advice to current students enrolled at NYU Silver or who maybe are undergraduates thinking about pursuing degrees in social work? Yeah, definitely. I would say like starting with the concrete, like part of the reason I chose NYU over other social work schools is that NYU as a university as a whole has just so much going on. And I knew that, you know, coming in a few years post-grad, like I had sort of a diverse set of interests that I wanted to be able to explore within social work, but also like within not social work, like outside of social work. And so my first year at, at NYU, I worked at a public health lab. It's through the School of Public Health. And I did research there about gender-based violence and other like gender-related issues. And I thought, sort of putting on a research hat would really support my clinical learning. Like I always knew, like I mentioned, that I wanted to be a therapist. I wanted to be a clinician. But I also figured that 
if I had the opportunity to learn more about these like structures in people's lives, like why not? My second year, I worked at a research center called the Furman Center, which is a collaboration between NYU's law school and policy school, and they do research on housing and neighborhoods. I was really interested in housing, and I'd worked in homelessness prevention before that. So I thought, like, how cool would it be to be able to, like, learn more about, like, what are the policies shaping, again, my clients' lives, right? So just being able to, like, sort of exercise different muscles and put on a different hat and look at systems with a different perspective, I thought would overall just really, like, aid in my clinical work. And then I think, like, just in the sort of, like, more general realm, I think just for anyone looking into social work, like, just thinking critically about your role in social work. Like, if you're not part of the communities that you're going to work in or you don't have lived experiences with the issues you're going to do, like, what are you going to do to sort of learn about the impact that you might have? And so as you look forward to the rest of your career, what's what's next for you? Um, so I was recently promoted within my role at Children's Aid. I'm, I'm now a lead therapist and so essentially, or lead clinician, and so my new role incorporates both, like, the clinical responsibilities that I was originally hired to do with also some new responsibilities around kind of program development and program management. Yeah, otherwise I'm like in a pretty deep, I would say, learning stage right now. And I'm exploring more like body-based therapy modalities that I can use with my clients. And I'm looking into training right now in EMDR, which is a trauma therapy that uses, unlikely enough, it like uses eye movement to reprocess traumatic experiences. And it's been found to be super effective. And I have clients who've had experiences with it and had really positive experiences. And I'm also looking into more ways to facilitate groups for people who've caused harm. So sort of to supplement the individual work I do with people who cause harm. And also like looking for more ways to connect to people who've immigrated to the U.S. and are in need of like mental health care or legal advocacy around that. And so a couple sort of new projects in the pipeline with that as well. Well, Anna, thank you so much for speaking with me today and for sharing your experience with me and with the NYU community. Thank you so much. It was so lovely to speak with you. This has been All in a Day's Work. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about the services that are offered at the Wasserman Center, you can log on to our career portal, Handshake, through your NYU homepage. Today's episode was hosted by Lily Smith with episode guest Anna Nathanson. We're produced by Miriam Miller and Lily Smith, edited by Lily Smith, and created with support from Nia Beresford, Daniel Crystal, Haley Garofalo, Joe Mercadante, Carrie Cantillanis, and Sarah Rosenthal. That's all in a day's work. Thanks for listening.